while in the you know, while the United States is gradually becoming more spiritual and less religious, polls show that belief in the paranormal is on the rise. Polls conducted in recent decades by Gallup and the data firm YouGov suggest that roughly half of Americans believe demonic possession is real. The percentage who believe in the devil is even higher and in fact has been growing. Gallup polls show that the number rose from 55% in 1990 to 70% in 2007, and it's going up as the years go by. But why is belief in demons on the rise when belief in Christian faith is declining? It seems that people seek spiritual fulfillment through the occult. By the way, the term occult comes from the Latin word occultus, which means secret or hidden things. Carlos Iyer, a historian at Yale, said, quote, As people participate in Orthodox Christianity declines, there's always been a surge in interest in the occult and the demonic. Today we're seeing a hunger for contact with the supernatural, end quote. Adam Jortner, an expert on American history at Auburn University, agrees, quote, when the influence of the major institutional churches is curbed, people begin to look for their own answers. At the same time that there has been a rebirth in magical thinking, American culture has become steeped in movies, TV shows, and other media about demons and demonic possession, end quote. And he's absolutely right. We're living in a culture that is exploding in the occult. And you can see it just as the professor at Auburn University said, in movies, in literature, TV shows, it's everywhere. The reason why I bring this up is because the apostle Paul is going to be going into a city where magic was absolutely rampant. We're going to see Paul's ministry in a city called Ephesus. And before we go into the passage, I want to give some background on the city of Ephesus. Before I do, I have to find my clicker. And I don't have it. Excuse me.
On? Okay. As I said, uh, the Apostle Paul is going to go into the city of Ephesus. And Ephesus was known uh, uh, and regarded as a place where a lot of magic, occultic activity uh, was taking place. So let's take a look at the city of Ephesus. We had seen in the past Paul's ministry in Philippi. We saw Paul's ministry in Thessalonica. We saw last week how he was encouraged in the city of Corinth. Now we're going to see Paul in Ephesus. So what was Ephesus like? The city of Ephesus was situated on the west coast of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. This thriving harbor city ranked with Rome, Alexandria, and Syrian Antioch as one of the greatest cities of the Roman Empire. The Apostle Paul spent nearly three years of his ministry in the center of Asian life. By the first century AD, the city had grown to around 250,000 citizens. Although Pergamum remained the official capital of Asia, Ephesus became the chief city with the real seat of provincial administration. When I say Asia, I'm not talking about the continent of Asia as we understand it today. We're talking about the Roman province of Asia, a lot smaller landmass. The most prominent and significant cult in Ephesus during the first three centuries of the Roman Empire was undisputably Artemis Ephesia, or otherwise known as Diana. The people of Ephesus regarded the city's relationship to her in terms of a divinely directed covenant relationship. Her temple, which was originally constructed in the 6th century BC, was the largest building in the Greek world and was made entirely of marble. The grandeur and the beauty of the temple led Antipater to classify it as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The cult of the Ephesian Artemis also had a close connection with the practice of magic in the city and in the region. The ancient lexicographer uh, Pausanias reports that the six magical Ephesian letters were inscribed on the occultic image of the Ephesian Artemis. These Ephesian letters were documents that they discovered. And in these documents were magical spells and incantations. It was all over the city of Ephesus. And it was related to the worship of Diana or Artemis. This is part of the reason why Ephesus gained a reputation as being something of a center for magical practices in antiquity. That is very important to understand that, especially when you read Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. In the world of Paul's time, magic was not a form of entertainment consisting of the skilled use of illusory tricks. It was far more serious and corresponds closely with what we might today call sorcery, witchcraft, or the occult, which again is secret or hidden things. Magic was based on the belief in the supernatural powers which could be harnessed and used by appropriating the correct technique. Magic can therefore be defined as a method of manipulating supernatural powers to accomplish certain tasks with guaranteed results. Magicians would not seek the will of the deity in a matter, but would invoke the deity or a god to do precisely as they stated. That's the difference between magic, is the person who is working or operating in that sphere is seeking to gain control of supernatural power for their own will to be done. 
That's not how a relationship with the living God works. So this leads to the question leading to our passage this morning. And the question, the question is this. What happens when the power of God is at work in a culture where magical practices flourish? We are living in a society that is becoming more and more involved and intertwined with the supernatural. As Christianity goes on the decline, you're seeing more and more people get involved in the supernatural. They're looking for something, but they're going into all the wrong places to find it. So what happens when the power of God is at work in a culture where magical practices flourish? Number one, when the power of God is at work in a culture where, the magi- where magical practices flourish, God will often work in uncommon ways in order to draw people to his message. It's the first thing that will happen, verses 11 and 12. Now God worked unusual, uncommon, extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or sweat rags or aprons were brought from his body to the sick people, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. You say, what on earth is going on here? And why on earth would God use, and the text clearly says, who's doing the healing here? God is doing the healing. The question is, why is he working through Paul's clothing? That seems rather odd why he would do such a thing. Keep in mind, he's, Paul is serving in, in, a, in a culture that is steeped in magic. And there were people in that culture who believed in uh, the cure through clothing. People in that culture would actually would use clothing and they would actually touch and lay it on a person who was sick and people would be healed. That's what the culture was doing. It wasn't from God, but the culture was like that. So here we see God doing the same thing as the culture. The only difference is God is doing it. And he's using Paul's clothing to do that. So whatever clothing would Paul would wear, whether it would be a sweat rag around his head or an apron as he was maybe making tents, if this stuff was touching his skin, these people would, when they heard about the miracles that Paul's clothing was bringing about, they would take his clothing and they would bring it to people who were sick and miracles would be done. You say, well, why would God do that? One simple reason, because he wants to draw people to his word. Because when Paul's clothing is being used in a miraculous way to bring about healings, what's going to happen? Those who are healed and those who hear about the healing are going to pay much more attention to what Paul is saying when he preaches. And Paul is preaching in Ephesus. So this is God's way of meeting a people steeped in occultism in a way that they would understand. That's God being merciful in a culture steeped in the occult, in magic, in order to draw people to Paul so when Paul preaches about Jesus, they're going to get the truth. That's what God is doing. So whenever we see uh, a culture that is steeped in magic and in the supernatural, the first thing we'll see is God do unusual miracles through his people or by whatever means necessary in order to draw people to his word. That's what happened in Ephesus. That That is going to happen in a culture as ours as well. So we should be anticipating that when God is at work. Number two, when the power of God is at work in a culture where magical practices flourish, those who practice magic will often attempt to control the power of God for their own ends. Remember, they're dealing with the supernatural. They're hearing about the Apostle Paul and the miracles that he's doing. Hey, 
we might as well take the name of Jesus, see if that can work for us as well. This is what happens. Verses 13 and 14. Then, after seeing what happened with Paul and the miracles that God was doing through his clothing, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call or to invoke or to name the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exorcise you, we adjure you, we solemnly command you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. Say, what's going on here? Here you have Jewish exorcists. Again, this is a place where a lot of occultic activity were going on, right? They hear about the Apostle Paul and the miracles that are being done. They see that Paul is preaching about Jesus, and they're saying, this guy, Jesus, is someone important. I wonder if we could use Jesus' name and incorporate it into an incantation or a spell so that we can bring about healing like Paul is healing. The, I highlighted in blue the quotes that they were saying. We exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. You know what that is? That's an incantation. That's what that is. That is a magical formula that they're using to try to bring about and drum up supernatural powers so that they can control. You say, what is an incantation? An incantation is a series of words said as a magic spell or charm. Ritual recitation of verbal charms or spells to produce a magic effect. That's what they're doing. They had taken the name of Jesus and are incorporated it, adopting it into their own magical formulas to bring about a certain effect. They want to bring about healing as well. And that's what's happening. What would they use magic for? Here's a list of some items that they would use magic in the first century for, and it's the same that people do today. Protection from evil spirits. Altering one's fate or future. To compel the physical attraction of another person. To gain favor and influence with people. To heal various kinds of illnesses. To attain special knowledge from a particular deity. To inflict harm on opponents or enemies. That's what people will use it for. Now, let me ask you a question. People, there are a lot of people, youth today, they go to school, they get bullied. Maybe you know some people who are getting bullied in school. Some of you young people know. Bullying happens. Who wants to be bullied in school? No one wants to be bullied. You come from a broken home, or maybe if you don't come from a broken home, you grow up and you're being bullied and you want to make it stop, but you don't know how to make it stop. You come across literature that tells you in a spell or you can call up some, use some magic formula and you can put a spell on someone who will, who, by which you can get the person to stop bullying you. You don't think a person would be tempted to do that? There's no question there are people, young people particularly, who would use this stuff to try to gain control of their own life, either to get someone to like them, make them more attractive. People do this. People use this stuff. And that's what magic was being used for then, and it's being used for today. I want to notice, I want you to, I want you to see something in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 21. This is Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. Notice the language that he's using when he writes this letter, a portion of his letter. He says, therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints... 
do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Now he's going to tell them what he's praying for them. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, because you're not going to get wisdom and enlightenment by playing with dark powers and occultic practices. That you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named or called upon or used in a magical incantation, not only in this age, but also in the age which is to come. You can see the language that he's using. He's writing to people who are steeped in the occult, and he wants them to be wise and understand that the power, the ultimate power, comes from Jesus, not through these occultic literature, movies, seances, tarot card readings, poem readings, tea leaves. All of this is occultic and is potentially harmful, is potentially harmful to every single person. All of this simply to say is that when the power of God is at work in a culture where magical practices flourish, those who practice magic will often attempt to control the power of God for their own ends. And these Jewish exorcists were doing that. And people are doing that today in our own society and culture. Number three, when the power of God is at work in a culture where magical practices flourish, those who attempt to control the power of God for their own ends will often be exposed and get hurt in the process. Verses 15 and 16. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked, exposed, and wounded, hurt. This is saying to any, pus, any person who dabbles in the occult and attempts to use the name of Jesus as a, 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 in, a, in a magic potion or formula, you're going to be exposed and you're going to get hurt. Christianity is not a faith to be trifled with. So if someone is dabbling in the occult and they think that they can get away with doing something like these men are doing, it won't work. Anyone who dabbles in the occult, whatever it may be, will be exposed and will be wounded in the process very, very serious. So when we have a culture like ours today and people think that they can just take the name of Jesus and use it in any way they want, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an occultic way, you're playing with fire. That's what this passage is telling us. Number four, when the power of God is at work in a culture where magical practices flourish, the name of the Lord Jesus will be highly honored. Verse 17, this became known both to all the Jews and the Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. As a result of these people trying to use Jesus' name in a magical incantation or spell, the result of what happened is that Jesus' name was magnified, and people were not going to be using Jesus' name in that way anymore. And so it elevated the status of Jesus and the Christian faith in that culture. And it will do that in our culture as well. Number five, 
When the power of God is at work in a culture where magical practices flourish, those who practice magic will often relinquish the powers that they have acquired when they come to the faith. Verse 18. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. So what does that mean? Many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. When the Apostle Paul was preaching in that culture in Ephesus, many who were practicing the occultic arts came to faith. But they didn't give up their, their, their powers through these spells that they were using. And the way that you would break a spell and the way you would get someone who's involved in the occult to no longer use their powers is, is to publicly say these spells out loud. It breaks the spell because the power is in its secrecy. So when these individuals come out and they confess and telling their deeds, what they were actually doing was confessing their magical practices and magical spells and magical acts so they can no longer refer to these, these powers that they would use for their own purposes. That's what's happening here. And many in the, in the occult, are, they don't want to give up their powers because they use it for control. So they can control others, have what they want to have done in their life carried out. They want to maintain that control. If you're in the occult, you have to sever that. And one way of doing it is to publicly proclaim all the magic spells or uh, your occultic practices. You must confess it out loud. That breaks the power so you can't go back and use it. 2929 states that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. The secret things is referring to the spiritual dimension, the spiritual realm. Those are secret things. God does not want us to know about these things unless he initiates it. When we initiate it through magical practices, we're opening up a door that we, he does not want open and that the handle is on our side. And whatever comes through that door, we do not control what comes through that door. So leave it closed. The secret things belong to God. Whatever God wants us to know, he will reveal it to us. And he's given his word uh, for that. And he states in his word throughout the history of Israel, never would one time in any time in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, do we see that occultic practices are acceptable or permissible for God's people. They're always told to stay away from it. And there's a reason. It's, because, it's not because it's harmless. This is not something to be trifled with. Number six, when the power of God is at work in a culture where magical practices flourish, those who practice magic will often publicly renounce their association with magic at great cost when they come to the faith. Verse 19, also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, that is, publicly. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. 50,000 pieces of silver. Uh, ben Witherington, a commentator on the book of Acts, mentions that 50,000 pieces of silver, or drachmas, is actually 50,000 days' pay for a day laborer. Another commentator F.F. Bruce uh, says this, if the silver refers to denarii, then 50,000 of them would equal a single worker's wages for 137 years without a day off since a denarius was an average worker's wage for a day. This is very, very expensive, very valuable. And for those who are in the occult and they publicly renounce their association and affiliation, there will be a price to pay. And many of them who are, have 
occultic friends will attack them through spells and incantations. So there's a price to pay when you come to the face, faith when you practice and you're involved in the occult. Seventh, finally, when the power of God is at work in a culture where magical practices flourish, the word of God will continue to spread and it will triumph. Verse 20, Acts 19.20 says, So the word of the Lord grew mightily and it prevailed. It was victorious. When the word of God and the power of God engage a culture where supernatural practices are, are, are evident among the people, the word of God and the power of God will ultimately prevail. It did in the city of Ephesus and it will, do, it will also in our own day as well. It is true. And God's word says so in Acts chapter 19. There's been a lot of uh, uh, debate regarding the, uh, occultic literature in the Christian church, specifically the books on Harry Potter. I want to read an article to you by Susan Brinkman back in September 2019 when an incident took place in a church in Tennessee. The recent incident involving the pastor of a Tennessee parish who decided to purge the school library of Harry Potter books has kicked off another round of verbal sparring over whether or not these books are dangerous because they contain real spells. It's just fantasy. The spells aren't real. Potter fans are once again arguing after Reverend Daniel Rehill of St. Edward's School in Nashville decided to pull the books. His actions sparked a rehash of the decades-old controversy over the Potter books, a large part of which concerns whether or not the spells in the book are real. Having done considerable research onto witchcraft and how it is practiced today, she says, I can say this, uh, that this argument is nothing but a waste of good breath. It not only misses the point, but it reveals a shocking naivete about the practice of witchcraft. While there is such a thing as real or mag real magic spells, you can find them all over the internet, which is true. Witches commonly make up or occultists commonly make up their own spells. As one uh, occultist says, spell casting is the art of identifying, raising, and directing energy to actualize our intentions. Your magical intention is the foundation of any spell. So, for example, should a person want to conduct a love spell, they charge a candle with their magical intention. They simply communicate their will to the thought words, dance, song, or even telepathically, and then they light a wick. When the candle has burned completely, the spell has been cast. The fact that occultists can and do create their own spells makes the argument about whether or not the spells in the Potter book are real irrelevant. In an occultist world and subsequently the demonic realm, it doesn't matter one bit if the spell is real. The spell is no less dangerous if it is fictitious because all that matters is the intention when one is working with the spell. This means that if a child recites a spell out of a Harry Potter book with the intention of working magic, the spell becomes real and is potentially effective, regardless of whether or not anyone has ever used it before. The forces of evil are not picky. They're more than happy to respond to people who are intentionally resorting to their powers rather than those source in God. Any book containing characters who resort to spells in order to get what they want can be potentially harmful to children regardless of whether the spells are real or fictitious. And you can go and surf online, those who cast spells, 
almost all of them, I did this, almost all of them said that the most important element in spell casting is the intention of the spellcaster. It makes no difference if the spell is fake or real. It's irrelevant. If a person is determined to use a particular formula of words or just gibberish words, if your intent is to bring about a supernatural effect, it can potentially work, and that makes it harmful. So the church needs to be very, very aware of these things. God is speaking to the church about these things. And unless the church is equipped, we're not going to be able to help those who are in the occult. And it is real. The Word of God says as much. So the church, you don't hear many sermons on this. And it's, it's, it's unfortunate. Because a lot of the times the, the, the problems in our world are in our world or even in our churches because those in the church leadership have failed to address it in the pulpit because they're too afraid to do so. This stuff needs to be talked about because God loves those who are in the occult. He died for them as he did for you and me and wants them to have a true relationship with Jesus Christ by faith, just like Paul wanted the people in Ephesus to believe. So that's the message for the church in a culture that is steeped in occultism. I remember when I was a teenager back home in Massachusetts, I would visit my aunt who lived on a lake. I would often fish on the edge of the dock. Once in a while, I would see fish swimming close to the dock. So I, wouldn't, so I would take my, my baited hook, and the bait was just simply a worm, and I would cast it where the fish were. It was interesting to see how the fish responded to the baited hook that was placed in front of them. Some fish just swam away. They didn't seem interested in the bait. Maybe they had already eaten, or maybe it was not the kind of bait to their liking. Whatever the reason, some of the fish just swam out of harm's way. Then there were the fish who seemed more curious about the bait that was placed before them. They would swim close to the bait as if to investigate it. Some would even nibble on the bait, but they never took, they never took a large enough bite to get themselves caught on the hook. Eventually, they lost interest and swam away without getting hurt. But there was one fish who seemed to swim around the bait longer than the others. When all the other fish had gone, this one fish decided that it could not resist the temptation anymore and went for the bait with everything that it had. And as a result, it got caught on the hook. And there was no way it was going to get free on its own. It would need outside help if it was going to be free from the hook that ensnared it. As I thought about my time fishing at my aunt's house, and the different responses that the fish had to the baited hook that I had cast before them. I am reminded of the different responses that people have to the occult, the baited hook that Satan places before them. For Satan uses the occult as a bait as it casts it out into the sea of humanity, hoping to catch as many unsuspecting people as he possibly can. He knows he will not catch every person with this kind of bait, just as a fisherman knows that when he casts a a line out into the water, he won't catch every fish. But he's hoping to catch some, and he will. Note that when the fisherman casts out his baited hook into the water, it is potentially dangerous and fatal for every fish in the lake. Not every fish will take the bait, but, if the, but every fish, if they did take the bait, would get caught. The same is true when Satan casts out his baited hook into the sea of humanity. The baited hook of occultic literature and any other occult practice 
is potentially dangerous for every human being. Not every human being will take the bait. Perhaps most won't. But every person, if they did take the bait, would get ensnared and, like the fish, would need the help of another in order to set them free. And since we do not know who will and who won't take the bait of occultic literature, occultic phenomena that Satan casts our way, it is wise to heed God's word on the matter and stay clear of it. That's what God has to say about this practice of magic in the occult. Stay away. You may not be tempted by it, but there are going to be many people who are, particularly young people. And God's word is saying something to them. And we need to know what God's word is saying to them and inform them by living a holy life and speaking truth on this issue from God's word. It matters. So much so that he came into this world to die on a cross for you and for me and for those who are in the occult. He loves all of us. And with that in mind, we come before his table where on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When supper had ended, he also took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he blessed it and said, this is the cup of the new covenant which is shed for you so that your sins may be forgiven. As often as you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. This is the body of Christ that is broken for you and for me. This is the blood of Jesus Christ which is shed for you and for me so that our sins may be forgiven. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. All is ready. All is prepared. We will partake together. I will go around and pass out the elements. I will ask that you just hold on to these elements so that we can partake of them together. We do have gluten-free, so if you need gluten-free bread, it's here as well. the body of Christ that was broken for you and for me at the cross. Let us partake together. The blood of Christ that was shed for you and for me so that our sins may be forgiven. Let us drink together. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. You have a word for all people, no matter where they are in life, no matter what they're experiencing, what we're experiencing. You have a message for every single one of us. Even those who are involved in the dark powers that this world offers them. But as we sung earlier this morning, you are above all powers, 
above all thrones, above all principalities the world has ever known. That's not just metaphor, that is literal. And that was displayed in the city of Ephesus. And you may do that very thing here in our culture, in our society as well. May your power go forth, Lord, in our culture. May people of all places, of all ages, of all languages, experience you and your power. Protect those, Lord God, in the occult. We ask that you would do a mighty work in their life and draw them to you and protect them through the mighty awesomeness of your power through your holy name. Lord, it's not an easy subject to talk about, but it, it is a subject we need to discuss. And we're just so thankful that you have given us a revelation on this issue in your word, knowing that we have a, a loving God who is willing to forgive us no matter what our past is, no matter what we have done or what we have said to other people, whether intentionally or not, when we come to you in faith, believing and confessing, we will be forgiven. May that be a lasting word that is, resonates in our minds, Lord, as people who are believers, that we are forgiven. We are forgiven people. And for the, because of this, Lord, we give you all the glory and the honor and the praise that is due you and you alone. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.